Welcome to the Fieldcraft Survival Podcast. I'm going to be your host for this advertisement space, as well as the host for the podcast guest that we're bringing in, Miss Ava Flannel. Guys, uh, this podcast is only possible with the help of our friends over at Black Rifle Coffee and Sig Sour. And obviously, we want to promote them as much as they're promoting us. So, Let's talk about Black Rifle Coffee. I was just over at Black Rifle Coffee the other day for an event, and they really put on a good show. So shout out to Reagan for all the hard work that she does, and Chris for all the artwork that can be found on all the bags. And I mean, they're just good people over there, uh, folks that we consider good friends. You know, Black Rifle Coffee, you can get all different flavors of coffee, blends of coffee, whether it's super light, like silence or smooth, or you know, AK blend or murdered out or gunship. I mean, you'll find one that's going to work for you. Recently, we were camping down a Spanish fork where we run all of our courses on the Kafaru property. And I was making the endurance blend, which is a dark roast. That's actually the Fieldcraft survival blend. And it's pretty damn good. Uh, right now I'm on my third cup of coffee for the day, just because I'm like dragging, you know, a little bit today, but I drink it every single day and everyone here at the company drinks black rifle coffee and we think you should too guys if you go to blackriflecoffee.com use the coupon code craft 15 you're going to get 15 percent off of your order um there's certain things you can't get with that 15 percent off like the ready to drink stuff so like the black rifle coffee in the can but you can get that at a gas station or sporting goods stores that stock it. And that's pretty damn good too. It's got 200 milligrams of caffeine and gets you, gets you going. Um, but yeah, I use craft 15 on blackriflecoffee.com and that'll save you a little bit of cash, especially in this economy. The other company I want to recognize is Sig Sauer. I know right now my buddy Kevin Owens is up at SIG doing a little bit of work there for the Freedom Days. I'm not sure when this podcast is going to come out, but he's up there right now. I've been up there a whole bunch of times. Uh, SIG Academy is really top-notch instruction. You can do everything from long-range shooting all the way down to pistol. They even have specialized courses every now and again that are outside of the shooting world that include medical training and personal security and things like that, um, actual executive protection training. Um, SIG, they're really class acts. Uh, you go there, you sign in, they ask you what you want for lunch. You train all morning. Instead of having to leave the facility, you walk outside the classroom or you get to the range classroom. And next thing you know, your food is just waiting for you. So it's like, they really take care of their students and I can't reckon, recommend them high enough. Um, and then as far as the pistols and the rifles and all that great stuff, I mean, I was just out with my SIG Tread uh, that I've modified a bit and with my 365 XL just yesterday shooting steel out on that property in Spanish Fork and both of them are running so great. Just remember, keep your guns lubed. They like running wet and uh, they'll treat you well. Probably the coolest thing with that 365 is that, you know, my 365 started off as like the standard 365 that has like the compact grip and the compact frame. When I moved out to Utah, I was like, well, I'm going to get the higher capacity magazines. So I started carrying the 365 with the extended grip and 12 round mags. And then my buddy Cav uh, was able to help me acquire a 365 XL slide. So with just that one pistol, 
Uh, I can have a long slide on a short grip. I can do a short grip with a long, did I just say that? Short grip with a long slide or long slide and long grip or short grip and short slide. Uh, it's, it's just a great modular firearm and it's super, super concealable and it gives you a lot of firepower in a very, very small package. So guys, 365 is awesome. Check out sigsour.com. Check out the SIG Academy. Go take some courses. Go train. I mean, if you're going to carry an awesome firearm, have some awesome training to back it up. All right, guys, we're going to get down to this podcast with Ava, and I'm sure she's going to have a few things to say about Black Rifle Coffee and SIG as well. Here we go. What's up, guys? Welcome to the Fieldcraft Survival Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Estella. I'm the director of training on the survival side of the house over here. And usually when I bring on podcast guests, you know, many of them, many times they're strangers. Um, but in this case, this gentleman who I'm going to introduce you to is someone who I've learned from since 2009. That was my first exposure to him. Uh, I was in Pennsylvania at an instructor uh, weekend for Sayak Kali, which is the Filipino martial art that I'm an instructor in. And this gentleman was presenting a massive, massive blade, the history of it called a Panabas. And I was like, this guy's really legit. He knows his stuff. He, he moves like a, like a devil. Um, and over the years, you know, I've actually been to his school in Wichita Falls, uh, Texas, and I've been you know, all, all over, uh, training with this guy. And I've been very impressed because he's a, a gentleman, he knows his, his content. Uh, and we have a lot of similar interests in mobility and shooting and, and you name it. So, uh, if you don't know the name Harley Elmore, uh, you should, uh, I know him as Tuhan Harley and the word Tuhan in Sayakali means master level instructor, right? So if you, are used to a traditional martial art where someone's called like a grandmaster. Well, in Sayak, we say Tuhan. So Tuhan Harley is my good friend, an inspiration to so many that train with him. And he is our guest on the podcast. So Tuhan Harley, how are you, sir? I'm great. Thank you very much for having me on. Yeah. Do you remember that day back in 2009 <laughs> with the, the Panavas? Oh, well, yeah, I remember, uh, preparing for that block and, and, uh, teaching that block. Absolutely. Um, uh, I thought that was uh, a really fun, a really fun block to, to present. Yeah. There, there have to be people out there that are like, well, what the heck is a Panabas? Uh, can you give a, a quick description of it? Sure. Sure. Uh, so uh, Panabas is a, um, a sword from the Southern Philippines and it's about generally it's about half handle and half blade. And it has this big, long scimitar blade sweeping upward arc really wide at the end, uh, and then a two-handed handle on the end. Um, and it's really just an amazing cutter. And um, I really like it. It's a very unique weapon in the Filipino martial arts. And, um, you know, there's not very much material out there on it. And, uh, you know, the history is kind of sketchy. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> yeah. but, but, uh, I, I was really, uh, you know, uh, infatuated by that blade and still my favorite blade of, of, of the Philippines. So, um, lots of other guys like the Chris sword and things like that, but minus the Panabas. Yeah. I think that's one of the allure, uh, to Sayak that, that I had when I first started was the, the reverence for the history, you know, and it's not just that, Hey, we're doing cool things now, but you know, you'll often see us post, you know, 10,000 hands. And a lot of people are like, what do you mean 10,000 hands? And it's like, that's a, a reference to the 10,000 hands that came before us. 
and we're the next 10,000 hands. And, and I'll tell you, like that, that history aspect of, of the art is something that just drew me in because it's so rich in the Philippines of, of all the different, uh, attempted, uh, conquerors, but none of them conquered it forever, you know? And, uh, man, I'll tell you there, there's so much that can be learned from that culture. Um, but you're not you're yeah. not just a martial artist in Sayoc. You have a lot of other uh instructor uh credentials to your name. I mean, what are what are some of the big ones? I know JKD. Yeah, um you know, I'm a, a full instructor under uh, Guru Dan and Asanto uh in uh his personal C-Lot system Mafalindo C-Lot and Majapayat martial arts which are his C-Lot systems. Um a full instructor in JKD or Bruce Lee's martial art and in Filipino martial arts, his, his blend system, which is a blend of 34 different systems of Filipino martial arts. Man. Um, yeah. And, uh, and I, um, a, a grandmaster under, um, Chris Bulo, uh, uh, Atilio and Atilio blend to walk. So, <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll tell you, it's very clear when, when I talk to you and when I've seen the stuff that you've posted online that you, you're, you're not a slave to, to one system. You're, you're willing to, to train under multiple and bring the best from all of it. And I think that's really at the heart of all the best martial artists that are out there. It's like, look, there, there's only so many ways to throw a punch, but here's the way that it's done in this system and, and in that system. And, and, and there's something to be learned from pretty much everything that's out there. And, and I mean, you've got a, a wide, wide range of, of, of the background there. Um, how did you get started? Like, do you remember your first martial arts class? <laughs> uh, that, that was uh, probably before you were born. Yeah, probably. Um, um, but uh, to be honest with you, I I do remember my first martial arts class. But um, man, that would have been so long ago. I the reason I the way I started was actually mail order martial arts lessons. Really? <laughs> yeah, I lived in a in a well, I lived in the country about five miles from the town and the town was only had a population of a thousand people in Arkansas and, uh, shout out to Mansfield, Arkansas. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, I, I lived out in the middle of nowhere and, uh, but I was, uh, you know, I grew up watching Bruce Lee movies and Kung Fu theater and all that stuff. And, um, so I was fascinated by the idea that there were people out there who, uh, didn't look like me, didn't speak the same language as me, didn't eat the same food, uh, you know, uh, worshiped a different God, all that completely foreign, like from a different planet. And that idea uh, was, you know, very fascinating. And, and of course, then they had this mystical, you know, fighting system, um, you know, that could, uh, you know, overcome any opponent, you know, that kind of thing. And so I found in some, some magazine, I don't remember even what it was, but uh, a mail order thing where you could send in $10 and they would send you a, a lesson. And it was a little booklet and, and, and it was a multicultural thing. So like one lesson would be on punching and kicking and another lesson would be on some kind of joint lock or something. And, and so I, that's actually what I did in the early eighties. Uh, that's kind of where I would practice. And I would go out in my my grandfather's barn out in the middle of nowhere and put on my leather work gloves and, uh, you know, punch my homemade heavy bag, which was a, you know, a, a toe sack or a canvas sack full of uh, old rags and stuff and uh, and train and and 
practice. And then uh, eventually I did get to, uh, in, in the early eighties, I did get to start studying in a formal martial arts class. Um, and, uh, and that guy at the time was the, uh, back then we had a thing called PKA, Professional Karate Association, which is a full contact kickboxing uh, um, thing. It was, you know, worldwide, I assume. And, and uh, my instructor was um, the reigning world champion at the time. So when I started with him as a young man, um, you know, uh, everything was lots and lots of calisthenics and then put on these 16 ounce boxing gloves that are still sweaty from the night before. And, and you just fought and you fought hard. And uh, so that was my, my introduction to the, to the martial arts. Man, I, you know, I've known you for a while and I, I've, I don't think I've ever heard that story, but I just have these like funny vibes now that it kind of resembled probably like Rocky four, you know, when he's in the barn. (laughs) Yes. Yes. That's exactly right. In fact, everybody who knows me now uh, from, from my family who thinks back, that's their, always their story. They're like, man, I remember you out in the barn punching and kicking and, you know, doing all this stuff. And I'm like, yeah, that's, you know, that was a guy who wanted it. And, uh, was willing to do whatever it took to get it. But yeah, man, that was the start. So I've got an embarrassing story. I, uh, when I was a little kid, I saw the karate kid and I was like, Whoa, this is so awesome. Like that crane kick is so cool. So, uh, my dad, my dad made a, and I'm, I'm like a little, little kid. So my dad made a, a punching bag for me, basically like stuffing a, a pillowcase with a whole bunch of blankets or whatever. And he hung it from like the, the door jam. So he's like, go ahead, kick it, kick it. And now I've always been flexible. So I do this crane kick and I managed to kick myself in the face. And I was like, <laughs> like, I remember being so discouraged. I'm like, that's not how it happened in the movie, you know? Um, so, so now you, uh, you end up uh, starting your, your martial arts journey. And, and a lot of martial artists will refer to training as the journey. When did it really take off for you? I mean, cause warrior's way your, your school now is massive. And like, I remember when I, when I was there in 2015, uh, when I was there in 2015, I was like, man, this school has like, uh, like a legacy wall of all the black belts that you've created. And like, you know, meeting Parker and meeting all those guys. I was like, damn, like these guys have been in it since they were babies. Like when did it really take off for you? Um, well, you know, uh, I, after Mr. Gibson, the instructor, I, I, I really, there were a couple of breaks, you know, uh, one was in the early nineties when Mr. Gibson, uh, hired me to be an instructor at his academy. And I went from being a guy who was just trying to train when he could to being a guy who taught and trained for a living. And so that was a huge break for me. Um, and you know, so that was, I just got to dive all in and be even more, uh, immersed in the world uh, than I had been before. And he also gave me the opportunity to meet people like Dan and Asano and Herman Suwanda and Master Chai and and all these instructors who are legends that I had only, you know, read about and, and uh, you know, read their articles, read things about them. But now here I am, you know, picking them up from the hotel, taking them to lunch, taking them to dinner, training with them, you know, that kind of thing. So that was the, the my first big shot. And, um, um, and I can't, you know, express enough how, how in, influential that was, um, which is why my grandson's named after it. No kidding. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> my grandson's name is Gibson named after uh, Terry Gibson. So, um, 
and then you know uh, he passed away in uh, 97 and I moved to Wichita Falls and restarted so to speak because it knocked the wind out of my sails you know uh taking care of him and and uh while he was sick and then then ultimately losing that battle and uh you know having to kind of reboot and get started again so i moved to wichita falls and uh with the idea of starting a school and still took me a little while to do that um so until then i did some bouncing and you know got some real reps there which was really very useful for me and um and then uh i opened a school with my wife and um, we were, you know, struggling financially, just barely making it, um, and um, just pouring our heart and soul into everything we did. We would, we if you had, you know, three people showing up for uh, a family picnic, we'd come and do a demo. <laughs> like we were, we were hustling. Um, we would sneak into the to the magazine stores or the bookstores and put our flyers in the magazines, the martial arts magazines, the fitness magazines. We were doing every type of guerrilla marketing you could think of. And um, eventually we just offered a good enough product and, uh, you know, fulfilled our obligations to our students. And uh, and it grew and grew. And now we have a pretty successful school. It's been going on. We're in our 23rd year. And. We have a, a fantastic staff. We have instructors that have been with me for over 20 years and almost, almost that whole time, you know. So, yeah, it's been been really great for us. And you survived COVID, which, <laughs> man, I don't know how yeah, many businesses, yeah. how, I don't know how many martial arts schools and gyms had to close because of COVID. Um, they, yeah. just, they didn't know how to adapt. Um, yeah. Man. Yeah, it was, it was a, that was a tough time, I got to say, uh, you know, but um uh, when, when, when that happened, they said, okay, well, you know, essential personnel still have to, uh, go to work. And so we, we, we decided, okay, well, we're essential personnel. And so we opened, uh, our martial arts school and offered a day camp for the children of all the people who were going to work, police officers, doctors, nurses, that kind of thing. So uh, they could bring their kids to our program and we would provide a camp for them, training, lessons, classes, all that stuff all day for free to all those people who still had to go to work. So that kept us, you know, um, uh, I kept our staff up and running. We we continue to pay them, continue to pay our rent, do all our all things. Um, and um, and the city was really beneficial. Uh, you know, they, they were reciprocal, you know, uh, they were very uh, appreciative of that kind of thing. So when uh, we were finally able to open, everybody came flooding back in with, uh, with all the support that we needed to be able to maintain our, our business and keep growing and keep flourishing. Yeah. I'm glad you're still around because like I said, I've never seen a school that has that culture behind it as strong as yours. And I think part of that has to come from the, the rigor that goes into your testing. Like and, and obviously all testing's proprietary. Like you have to be there, you have to be in the room to understand it. But what are some of the challenges that you put forward in front of your guys that, you know, when they're, when they accomplish the test, they're like, I can't believe I just did that. Like, I know that your, your instructors, it's not just content that they have to know there's performance. Uh, like what are some of the things that you have or your guys do? Yeah. So, well, let me just give you an idea of the kids program. <laughs> yeah. Um, Right. So the kids program, we're talking about 10 year old, 12 year old, something like that. Um, so they have uh, to run a mile and a half. They have to do 50 push ups and they have to do 50 leg lifts. Um, and that's their 
physical fitness portion of their test. They have a written test, which is uh, 60 words, and they have to translate them from Chinese into English. Um, then they have their physical fit. Then they have their physical performance portion where they're actually demonstrating the material. Uh, that takes about three hours to do to demonstrate all their material. Um, and in the middle of that, there's a portion which is an oral exam, in which they have to uh, be able to answer questions about the the history of their martial art and the philosophy of the martial art in which they're becoming a junior black belt in. And uh, then at the end, they have to spar. And um, and they only do three rounds, but that you know by then they've done 500 punches and five. 500 kicks and the whole run and all the performance. And so they're already exhausted. And, and then they have to do uh, a light, medium and hard round. And the final round um, is, you know, we just, they have to um, push, even though, you know, they're getting punched and kicked and they get the breath knocked out of them and they're getting, you know, bonked in the head and all that stuff. And right when you see that, you know, their body is telling them that they can't go on and they can't, and hold up their hands and they can't breathe and they want to quit so bad, but their heart won't let them right there. When you see them realize that and keep pushing anyway, that's, that's when they pass. And so, um, you know, getting them to that point, there's different ways that different schools get them, but that's how we get them to that point. And, uh, once they prove to themselves that that's what they have, that, that, that they can do those things, everything else in their life will be pretty easy. I, I tell them, look, you know, uh, someday you're going to be in, worried about a test and you're going to be taking some high school test or some college test or something along those lines. Well, I guarantee you that the teacher is not going to jump over the desk and run over and kick you in the head and knock you down. <laughs> <laughs> so nothing you're going to face after this will be as hard. And uh, so they all appreciate that. And, and, uh, but that's just the kid's test. And so the adult class would be much different. I mean, much uh, more challenging than that. <laughs> Like, uh, you know, I, I think some of the listeners might be saying to themselves, like they couldn't do that as an adult, but I mean, even if that's just your standard and you say, look, I should be able to at least do what the kids from Warriors Way can do. Like that's already an impressive feat, but then work your way up to the adult standard, which, you know, is obviously going to be more challenging. Um, but you're spot on with that idea of, you know, if you can do difficult things in training, like if you can be pressure tested, I know, uh, you know, Justin Garcia, master Chim, he always talks about, you know, pressure to power and that pressurization mm -hmm. of the, uh, of any task, it, it makes you a better person. And then when things come along that you once thought were pressure, you're like, this is not pressure. Like I've had worse, you know? And, uh, I always like that expression. Uh, I didn't come this far just to come this far. It's like, I didn't go through all that just to stop here, you know? And, right. and, and, and right. man, th there's a lot to be learned there. Yeah, well, so I believe that really the martial arts is exactly what you're talking about. It's a form of of uh, stress inoculation that helps people become, you know, master themselves and then be able to take that personal mastery into other areas of your life. If it's if the lessons you're learning in your martial arts program are only beneficial in in times of violence, then that's how often does that <laughs> how often does that occur? How often is that useful? So, um so uh, what we have to do is we have to say, okay, well, these things I'm learning, this this uh, stuff that I'm installing myself have to transfer from the swim lane of violence to the swim lane of relationships, the swim lane of, of business, the swim lane of, of family life, uh, of health, all those things. 
And if it doesn't really transfer over, then it's a very limited use. And um, so I think that it has to. I, I believe that there are really only five things worth training. And that is fear, fatigue, frustration, pain, and doubt. And what better avenue to be able to consistently find those things than martial arts? I think this is the perfect segue into talking about PSYOC because when, when I started, when I first learned about PSYOC, I think it was shortly after the movie, The Hunted, which yeah. uh, your fellow two ones, uh, Raphael Kayanen and Thomas Kyer, you know, both of those gentlemen were the fight coordinators for that. They were the behind the scenes guys. So I learned about this and I'm like, Hey, I'm half Filipino. I should learn Filipino martial arts. So I was, <laughs> I was, I was lured in at first by the motion, right? I was lured sure. in by like this, this looks cool. It doesn't look like traditional martial arts and they're using blades, which I've, I'm half Filipino. Of course I'm going to like knives and, you know, sure. I'm gonna, I, and I'm a survival guy. So I've been carrying knives since I was like five or six. So, uh, when I first got in there, I'm like, okay, this is cool. And then as I started meeting the higher instructors and, and learning from Manong Rich and Manang Su about, okay, this is going to prepare you for dealing with, uh, you know, health issues, or like you said, relationship issues or whatever. I was like, man, this is really carrying over. And now look at this. Like I started in 2007, my, my book that I wrote and not to like pat myself on the back, but it wouldn't have been possible without SIAC and it wouldn't be successful if it weren't for those universal formulas that I learned hour after hour training in Bristol at Raisu and then applying that to survival concepts. And it was so useful. I was like, man, this is more people should know about that. And now the crazy thing is, is that people are using those terms. They're saying, Hey man, I'm, I'm really digging this feeder concept. And it's like, you know, it's, it's not, I, and I say, look, I can't say it's mine. It's Psyox. Um, I think you're the best person to explain that. What is a feeder? Um, well, I mean, really, if we look at, <laughs> I think it's probably easiest to explain what it's not. Yes. For instance, yeah, for instance, we we all have a friend and, you know, this friend that we know, uh, life is always happening to him. You know, he's having job problems, is having relationship problems, breaking up again. This girlfriend, that girlfriend, cars broke down, he's always broke, you know. And so things he's always complaining about things happening to him things happen to him and uh, it's everybody else's fault everything else's fault life just happens to that guy and um so that would be what we would reserve I, 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 it would be the ideal of a receiver life things just happen uh as opposed to a feeder right so a feeder uh lays out a plan uh, a logical plan driven by the fire of uh, of emotion and and desire and goal setting um, and then follows that plan logically to achieve the results he's looking for, to live the life he's looking for, to make the impact in his family and impact in his community, impact in, in, in the activities that he does, um, in the way that he does, that he chooses, uh, by plan. And, um, so a, a lot of people think of feeders as being the guys who are, um, you know, aggressive and hard charging and, you know, uh, you know, screaming and yelling and all that stuff. But, um, you know, there's a lot of different types of feeds and, um, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean the guy who's, uh, you know, a real loud cheerleader or a guy who's super aggressive. It's just a guy who, um, 
you know, who is dictating the flow of information and is controlling um, as much of his world as he possibly can. And the second, third order effects of those. I, I always think of Jordan Peterson as a perfect, like intellectual feeder. That guy just crushes people with his logic. And he almost, he almost baits people into the response that he, he needs in order for him to get his point across. Uh, and, and I would say he's just a classic feeder. Um, yes. Yeah. And the, and the thing about, uh, uh, Dr. Peterson is, you know, he, he had tens of thousands of those reps as a professor with students and, and colleagues before he became pu a public figure. So that's why his presentation is so polished now is he's had these arguments with so many people at this point that he knows what you're going to say next. And so <laughs> Um, when I see people get on and, and try and debate him, I'm like, man, what were you thinking? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, <clears throat> you know, I, I think that's one of the the things that sets us apart in our, in our system. Uh, and I say our system because it's, it's family. Um, yes. you know, I, I say that, you know, our lessons that we teach on the, on the mat or in the fields or, or wherever we are, there's always a metaphor for, what we do there to the rest of our life. Um, you know, I know with like Dave Kalstein, Guru Dave Kalstein, he brought the frozen lake to everyone's attention. And then there's the idea of the drop blade. And, you know, I mean, I could, I could list them over and over and over. And it's interesting when people come to like our training group that we have here in South Salt Lake and they, they hear just a little glimpse of it. They're like, man, I didn't know it could be so deep. And it's like, well, what's the alternative? Do you want to train just like a, a shallow martial art where, you know, it doesn't apply or, or as you said, it's only going to happen in extreme cases, which the possibility and probability aren't very high. Um, mm -hmm. What do you think the, the greatest lesson is that you've learned in your years uh, under Pamanatuan Chris, uh, Chris Ayak uh, in the system? Like, what do, what do you think the greatest takeaway has been? Mm, wow, that's that's a, that's a, that's a tough one. That's right? a hard one right there. <laughs> the greatest lesson, I, you know, I, I, uh, I'd have to say that there, there have been so many and they're all so profound, but you know, there are, there are statements, you know, um, that maybe weren't even, no one else was around, you know, mm -hmm. uh, those very personal statements that he said to people. Uh, and I, you know, I, I think that those are often, um, because they are directed to right at you. And what you need to hear at the time. And uh, I, I remember one time in particular, he told me, he's like, you have no idea how good you'll become. And that just shocked me. Uh, and, uh, you know, so when I when when I think about the th many things that he's told me over the years, you know, that one just kind of resonates with me because it, it lets me see lets me see a little bit of what he saw. And. Uh, no matter what I'm doing right now, I have to assume that it's nowhere near what I should be, what I should become. Um, and so I use that as a driving factor into trying to push myself to be better, not to rest on work that I've done in the past, my past deeds, my, my past things, my past knowledge, but to constantly explore and, and, and drive myself and, and my tribe and, and my family, uh, to, to be better. He's the one that pushed you to start Headhunter Blades, right? Yeah, he did. He did. Uh, you know, he, he was such a uh, um, creative individual. 
uh, himself, you know, and um, had such a profound understanding of 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 the physical world, uh, of the the violent world, and, the, and in particular the blade concepts of what, that we were dealing with, that um, the stuff that he pushed out was to me just mind blowing, and uh, I was like, well, we should have our own version of that. I mean, we should make that. And he was like, yep, okay, go ahead and do that. Go, go get started with that. <laughs> yeah. I was like, okay. I, have no idea. He's like, go, go, go find out. And so that's exactly what I did. I went and found a, a custom blade maker and uh, apprenticed under him and figured it out and, you know, ha, you know, made all the mistakes and, <laughs> and, uh, and then eventually was uh, in a position to be able to uh, uh, make those uh, ideas, uh, bring those ideas into reality and make them a real thing. And, so Headhunter Blades was born, and um, thus the the SIOC, uh, process of, of blade development and design. I think there's something you said, too, about even the name of the company, Headhunter, right? Like when people hear Headhunter, they might think like, okay, uh, this is someone who's recruiting people straight out of college, right? Like a headhunter for an agency. <laughs> sure. But the, the reality of the term Headhunter comes from the Philippines, quite literally taking heads. Um, yes. Now- Let's talk about a couple of your designs because they've been imitated. And when they say it's a sincere form of flattery, I get it, but I don't think they can be, <laughs> they can be copied. Um, the Warhawk that I, I remember seeing the, the first time seeing the Warhawk and I, I remember, uh, I won't give his name, but he showed me some videos on his phone and he's like, yeah, we were putting this through a 55 gallon drum over and over and over. And I was like, oh my gosh, what is this? And then I, I was like, that is absolutely incredible. And it, and it has that same or similar front spike to the, the Winkler R and D, which mm -hmm. we, we know is everywhere now because of the, the Jack Carr books and, and just right. it's everywhere. But that Warhawk is based on head hunting. Um, the, the idea from the Philippines based on the, the traditional tools there. Can you kind of yeah. give a little bit of the background of that? Um, sure. So, you know, uh, with SOC Tactical and, and uh, uh, Two on RAF and all of us working together with various teams, um, you know, there was uh, some interest in something that would be a, a great force multiplier. Um, and so uh, Two on Tom came up with the original design for the uh, Warhawk. We had uh, some different custom knife makers at the time. I wasn't making knives at the time, and it was before we uh, had a relationship with Winkler. So we found I found a custom knife maker, and uh, we started using him. And he started making the first prototypes. And and you know the way the design process works in Sioc for for a blade is, you know, no no one guy, no not you know it's not just one dude who makes the knife. It's all of us, and so. You know, we come up with the original design and then we we make the prototypes, we pass them around and all the high ranks get to use them and train with them. And we do some testing and see how well that works. This edge geometry, this point configuration, is this handle too long, too short, too fat. Um, and then we put it in the hands of the people who are going to be using it, you know, uh, team guys who are, um, you know, out and let them carry it for a while. And they give us some feedback. And and so as a tribe, we design the knife. Right. It's not not just me sitting in a, in a vacuum in my knife shop, you know, it's uh, all of those guys. It's the, it's the 10,000 hands that, that end up with a design. And so um, that was the process, uh, you know, went through se several iterations. There's, there's even 
uh, out there floating around somewhere. There's uh, even some Warhawk designs where um, the bottom part of the handle is is a pry bar, um, you know, with uh, like a crowbar where you could use it as an entry tool. So there's there's some different iterations out there just because of the the process of you know real R and D, you know, uh, real research and development, and and uh, the feedback of of uh, of uh, our instructors using it and uh, our own testing and and like I said, some of the guys who are out there in the field carrying it. What's going on, guys? Welcome to the Fieldcraft Survival Podcast. I'm going to be your host for this advertisement space. Um, these ads are necessary. They're necessary to bring great content to you. So uh, just bear with us for a little bit while we tell you about a couple of the companies that make this podcast possible. The first company I'm going to recognize is Element. That is spelled L M. N T uh, element and the website is drinklmnt.com and our special link is drinklmnt forward slash fieldcraft. All right. If you live in Utah, you know that the sun beats down on you and you are basically being turned into a raisin in the summertime. Uh, if you are into training, you know what it's like when you sweat and sweat and sweat and you just drink water and you just feel exhausted. Well, in both of those scenarios where you are getting dehydrated or you're perspiring a lot, you're losing, you're losing electrolytes, right? You're losing the salt from your body, right? Sweat is salt. Tears are salt. Um, Element is a salty drink mix. And depending on your your palate, you're going to either like it very salty or mildly salty, but I'm going to put it this way. When you drink element, it's like flipping on a light switch. Not too long ago, uh, before I left, before I left Utah uh, for fieldcraft training in North Carolina, I did a lot of hiking, right? I hiked Mount Baldy, which is like 8,000 feet. I hiked Timpanogos, which is over 11 K. Um, I was putting in some long hikes and this is before the mercury dropped. Well, I brought element with me on each of those hikes. And at the same time that I was doing these hikes, I was also doing the keto diet. So very, very limited carbohydrate intake. I was dropping, I dropped close to 20 pounds, actually over 20 pounds. Um, and usually when you do the keto diet, you get the keto flu because you don't have carbs. Well, I'm gonna tell you this, with element, you get back electrolytes after you sweat. Uh, and if you drink it first thing in the morning, it helps you retain water throughout the day. So it helps you stay hydrated. This stuff is awesome. I'm not the only one that uses it. We have a lot of professional sports teams that use it. There are tier one operators that use it, uh, Olympians that use it. If you go to drinkelement.com forward slash fieldcraft, you can get a free sample pack. All you have to do is pay shipping. Okay. It's only going to take a couple samples for you to realize this is good stuff. And you're going to buy all the flavors that are out there. Citrus salt, uh, watermelon salt. Uh, there's one that I haven't tried yet. I know Ricky was talking about it. It was like a like a mint chocolate salt, which might sound a little crazy until you try it. I don't know. I'll find out. I'll report back later. But guys, check out drinkelement.com forward slash fieldcraft. I guarantee it'll help you with your performance. All right. The second company that I'm going to recognize is Manscaped. That's like landscaped, but for dudes. Uh, the website is manscaped.com uh, and the coupon code is fieldcraft. It's going to give you 20% off. So 20% off free shipping with the code fieldcraft at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped. Just use the code fieldcraft. This is one of those companies that 
you probably don't talk about in public, but with your buddies in the locker room, right? Or, you know, maybe over a couple of drinks at a bar, you're talking about what your gal likes. And listen, this is not the eighties. We're not running around with, you know, big wintry stuff down there. Um, Manscaped will take care of all of your male grooming needs. Um, listen, Cameron, one of our guys over at production, he, he got to try one of these. That's what I heard. Um, and I'll tell you, uh, from the smile on his face, I think he's definitely, definitely enjoying the way that his uh, wedding tackle feels. So guys, please go over to Manscaped. It's manscaped.com, coupon code FIELDCRAFT. Uh, 20% off Cameron member. He is, uh, you know, our supply chain manager. He handles a lot of packages guys. Manscaped will handle your package. All right. So use the coupon code fieldcraft, get 20% off. Whew. All right. That's it for the podcast ad. See, it wasn't that bad guys. All you got to do is go over to element, go over to manscaped, maybe drink some element after you manscape yourself. And now tune into this podcast. It's going to be awesome. Here we go. And that feedback loop is is definitely missing with a lot of makers that are out there. It's like you you pick up something and you're like, I mean, I, I look at it like Glock pistols, for example, right? Like for the longest time, people were like, man, I love this gun. I just wish they didn't have the finger grooves. It's like, well, then get a Gen 1 or a Gen 2. And then next mm-hmm. thing you know, Gen 5 comes along and there's no finger grooves anymore, right? Like right. It, it, took, it took a while, but it eventually got out there. But I think that feedback loop is missing with a lot of these makers that they let their ego get in the way and they're like, well, I'm making it. I know what I'm doing with it. And it's like, you're the maker. You're not the user, you know? Um, but that's not the case here. And that user feedback is kind of what inspired the rap, right? It was, it was, you needed a very compact tool. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, certainly, uh, but we are the users, you know, uh, mm. Sioc, we are the, we are the experts in the, in the particular use of the blades that we're, they were doing. And, and um, and then we just take the feedback from from everyone that we put the, put in the hands from whether they know what they're talking about or not, you know. Um, and uh, and then we take that and we we put run that through our own side filter of whether that's useful information or not. Right. But right. you know the uh, uh, it, it, the designs really boiled down to what's the mission, you know, and uh, the particular mission for the rat uh, as as requested from the people that we were working with. Um, was something that was very low profile that could, you know, clip onto your sock, clip into your, you know, your, your board shorts, um, you know, even hide under your hat, um, you know, or inside a jacket pocket of a sports jacket. Uh, and they could travel all over the world and be very low profile, you know, as the, as the GWAT changed a little bit and the theater in which the operators were, were uh, operating and kind of changed a little bit. And, and I, in particular, being on full-time contract at that time, um, working with low-vis guys, um, walking around in normal clothes, there was this, this need for this new, new design and nothing really fit it and fit that design. And so it went through the design process and everybody put their hands on it. Everybody trained with it and, um, you know, and then we kind of got lightning in a bottle, you know, everything came together and, and, uh, and it turns out that that crosses the, the threshold so well, you know, it doesn't matter whether you're an undercover, you know, ATF agent or, uh, you know, a, a police officer on duty or, you know, just an armed civilian walking around, you know, trying to protect yourself and your family. 
that kind of fits the model that that so many people wanted and uh so the rat took off and did extremely well and and uh before we realized it it became the flagship of headhunter blades it's one of those knives that is it's so recognizable because of that that hook feature on the on the puño on the butt of the the blade um and i've seen so many makers since it came out try to they they say that it's their design but it's like that's totally a rat you know like i look at it and i'm like you guys you know about the rat or you're doing something that's that's got that ability to to grab it and access it even with a, a thin handle a small handle it's it's easy to to get it out of the sheath um i think what's really cool about the the Sioc blades and the Sioc uh, designs is i mean the sheath systems um, whether it's two on Carl's, you know, Atienza blades or, right. uh, some of the Winkler designs have them or, or yours, that sheath design with the, the cloth grabbing clip. I mean, that really changed the game. Um, I, I mean, how did that come about? Like, I, I don't think I ever heard the history of, of like how, how the sheaths came out or, or, right, or, or right. your thoughts on it. Well, um, you know, now that I'm making knives, I, I had to make sheaths and uh um when we started trying to you know find a way to carry this blade because you know the blade itself is only part of the system right you got to have a way to carry it and conceal it and then deploy it uh you know actually get it out in the sheet in, into the world and into the fight um in a timely manner and um uh, so you know as we were going through that process um you know, that's when we realized that there were no clips on the market that we that we really liked. You know, we were taking, uh, you know, holster clips that were an inch wide and putting them in a clamp. And my wife's got a cutoff wheel and an angle grinder cutting these clips in half. And I was like, oh, my God, that's dangerous. Um <laughs> So I was like, this, this is not the answer. We've got to find a better answer. And we were, you know, we were brand new, you know? And uh, so uh, it turned out that we couldn't find anything that we were looking for. So um, my wife said, look, just design one. We'll just have somebody make them for us. And, you know, we'll just order 10,000 of them, or, you know, cause you know, that's not an inexpensive uh, thing to do and they don't do it in small batches. So look, like, okay. So we designed the clip that we use and, uh, with the garment hook um, so that, because like I said, it has to, part of the mandate of the rat uh, mission was that it should be able to run on board shorts and other things that didn't have defined belts or waistbands. And uh, for instance, if a guy's clipping that at the top of his sock, it still has to draw, you know, um, you know, so, um, so I sat down and designed that clip to be that length and that width and have that garment hook and um we went ahead and ordered them and um the company that we ordered them from uh you know liked our design they said hey other people want to buy your design and have those made for them uh do you want us to allow us to do that we we said no we don't really want to do that um you know if they want to they can buy them from us um but you know uh not long after that some other guys came up with some other great designs and I mean, I didn't go into the business to be a clip designer. It's just a necessary byproduct. Wow. I didn't, I didn't realize that that was the, the background behind that. I, uh, I knew that the other clips were inferior. I knew like plastic clips will break where the screws are attached to them. And I knew that like some of the other attachment methods that are out there are just bulky or there's like fail points in them. But I didn't realize that like you actually had to, 
start that from the ground up. Um, <laughs> geez. Now, uh, so in between like, and I'm, I'm jumping around cause I've just been highly caffeinated today. It was a long night, but, uh, so, so in between martial arts and, you know, running the school full time and being the, the lead maker behind headhunter blades, you've also got a lot of these common interests that our listeners have. I have, and I'm like, Oh man, Tuan Harley's doing that. Like, I know you're a Jeep guy, which will make my friend Mikey Hernandez very happy. And, <laughs> and you've equipped your, your Jeep with some very common sense tips. Like a few of them I've, I've taken from you, like where you were saying, put your tourniquets on the, on the grab handles. I was like, good yeah. idea. Uh, what are some of the tips that you'd recommend for folks, uh, with their vehicles for success? However you decide to define success. Sure. Sure. So, you know, uh, working with the mill guys, um, you know, they have a saying and, and it's kind of to, to denote, um, Hey, remember your responsibility. Remember what your job is here in this, in this role. And so that is that, that saying when we were doing some driving and some vehicle combatives and that kind of stuff was, Hey, remember drivers drive, shoot or shoot. So, you know, I was like, Oh, okay. Well, what that kind of reminded me or made me realize is that every seat inside the vehicle has a role. So, um, if you're the driver, that's your job. If you're the navcom navcom guy, which is the front passenger seat, that's your job. You are doing navigation and communication, and uh, and then the back seats have you know backup roles and, and other roles. And I was like, oh, that's brilliant. So really, inside this vehicle, every single seat where a butt would sit is a workstation. And so I set my Jeep up so that every seat has the ability to work. So on every headrest is a headlamp. Um, on the back of every headrest, it hangs a uh, IFAC kit. Um, underneath every seat is a bottle of water, a, a pair of work gloves, um, and on every visor and every grab handle uh, hangs a pair of sunglasses because I live in Texas. <laughs> so, um, so just realizing that, Hey, everybody here, everybody in this car might need to be able to throw. Oh, also there's a ball cap as well on under every seat. So under every seat, um, there's a bottle of water, a ball cap, pair of leather work gloves, and there's a pair of sunglasses hanging there. There's a headlamp on everyone and an IFAC on everyone on every headrest. And so every single station that's for my Jeep Wrangler, um, uh, is a workstation. That is awesome. Now, what's the ball cap for? It's Texas, bro. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I am a bald white guy living in Texas. <laughs> and so you get out there for more than a couple of minutes and it'll get you good. So, uh, um, yeah. So, you know, I believe that, uh, if you know, let's say, let's just say you're broke down on the side of the road, you know, and it's 115 out mm -hmm. there. Uh, and you know, this isn't a real problem. It's just a flat tire. It's going to take you a few minutes to change or, you know, something along those lines, but there you are, you know, and as you well know, uh, cause I've learned it from, from guys like you, uh, clothing is your first line of shelter. Yes. And so uh, if all I, if all I needed to do was throw in a ball cap and pair of sunglasses, um, then I can survive the environment that I'm in long enough to get this simple task done. But uh, if I don't have those things, then even this simple task that might take a little bit of time gives me a little more exposure to the elements than I needed, right? 
You know, what's crazy is I always talk about how a person should have like a pair of uh, comfortable boots that they could walk away from their vehicle in if they had to leave their vehicle to get help. But I've only thought of just the driver doing that, you know, and I've always had like in my mind, like I'll set up whoever the passengers are for success to stay there. Mm -hmm. But it makes sense to have everyone have that equipment with them instead of breaking up the group, bring the whole group with you if you can. Um, So I never I never thought of it that way of having every every seat a workstation um and now in in full disclosure i've been taking notes i'm like i'm gonna add a few more things to my my forerunner (laughs) um passenger front seat nav communications you're a ham radio guy and there's one time i think we were down in queens at uh grew nick school um yeah at progressive and you showed a radio setup that you have that fits in about the size of no more than like an old school lunchbox. And you're like, I could reach anywhere in the world with this. And I was like, what, what is, what is your, your ham radio setup for travel that, that you rely on? So there are, um, you know, lots of, of, um, small HF radios that, uh, can run off of something as small as a motorcycle battery um, that run low power. You can run a wire antenna, um, so you can just coil it up, and you can have that little that little ham radio in, uh, in the vehicle in that uh, box with a little battery and a coiled up antenna, um, and you know you can pull that out and throw it up and you know get work done. Uh, we've done it. Uh, we had that same setup, threw it up in the Poconos, and made contacts back down in uh, in Texas just one evening after Sama Sama. So, um, but there's a ton of those uh, little HF radio rigs. Now I'm not necessarily a low power guy, QRP guy, um, because I'm a dependability guy. So um, I want as many Watts as I can push with the power supply that I have. So obviously you can, you can overdo that to the point where now you're draining your power supply. And so that's not useful, but um, but yeah, I, I'm not a, you know, five watts kind of guy as if I can get away, but I want to, I want to increase my chances of being able to speak to people and, and relay my message or have my message relayed by others, uh, as dependably as possible. What are your tips for passing the ham radio test? I mean, I know some guys say like, just study the questions and the responses. Uh, mm-hmm. what would you recommend for someone that's wants to get into amateur radio? Yeah, that's that's uh, the advice I was given. I've probably had a couple of hundred guys test under me uh, and get their license uh, over the last 15 years that I've been an operator. And, um, you know, I, you know, I still think that's the way to go. Study the answers, pass the test um, and then just find somebody, uh, find a group or, or or find a group in the process of that, because it's really you don't really learn by the text you really learn in front of the radio. And so the faster you can get in front of a radio, um, the faster you can get on the air and get over that, you know, microphone shock, the faster you can learn to adjust your ear to pick up the call signs and, and to be able to, you know, work all the bells and whistles on your radio and, and really dial in, uh, you know, the channels and stuff, the the better operator you're going to be. And, um, you know, and I'm, you know, I'm a ham radio operator, but I'm I'm not like the guy who gets on there every night and spends hours on there. I get on there on a regular basis, do my radio check, make sure I can remember where all the buttons and bells and whistles are, that I know how to do it, that I can send a signal and receive a signal. And I go, okay, check. And then I move on. That's just one one aspect of my comms that I 
that I use on a regular basis. You know, I, during COVID, I kept telling myself, I'm like, I'm going to study for this exam. And I, I was preparing for it. And then COVID happened. And the town where they did the testing was like two over for me, but they shut it down. And I was like, oh my gosh, yep. like I had all this information in my head. And, and, you know, I know it's more my fault than anything else that I probably should just get back in the books and, and study for it. But I don't, I don't think people appreciate the value of amateur radio and just the capability. Like I've heard you refer to certain things as superpowers, like the ability to have your voice heard is a superpower. And especially if it can travel further than the human voice, like that, that's, that's incredible. But I think it's because there's so much studying that goes into it. It's not like you can just go to the store, swipe your card, buy the the latest and greatest whatever and have it. Like there's actual skill that's involved. Um, I wish more people knew it. I wish I, and I'm going to, <laughs> I wish I, I took the test, you know, and just, and just got yeah. it already. Um, yeah, it really is. It really is a superpower, you know, and, and we all know friends who say, well, I'll just get a radio and I'll put it in the closet. And if things go bad, I won't need a license anyway. I'm like, well, you won't know how to operate that radio either. <laughs> so, you know, you're going to need to go find a ham operator to learn how to work that anyway. It's not, it's not a, a radio like in your car, you know, uh, it does take time and it does take practice to be able to do it, which is why I still get on there and practice on a regular basis. And, um, but yeah, you know, it's been around a long time. My, my Elmer, uh, uh, Charlie Kosman, who taught me how to do radio, uh, during nine 11 was in uh, New York and brought his ham radio set up and was part of the emergency communication for that disaster. And, and then of course, um, you know, he was at uh, hurricane Katrina, uh, down there again with his radio. And so, I mean, it's a very valuable network of people who are extremely capable very independent all their radios and all their rigs are you know can run off grid they're they're self-sufficient uh, and very effective and uh i'm like that sounds like me <laughs> when i look at him like that sounds like like stuff i believe in and so uh yeah i i i think it's a very useful resource speaking of useful resources something that i like asking a lot of the guests is uh to describe their their daily carry or their loadout and i remember we were in the poconos i think this was the same year that you showed how to make a uh uh a wound packing simulator out of like a yoga block and a, and a pump i think that was the same year i was like damn i've never seen that before i've got one in my office right now um and then you were like oh yeah and by the way i'm carrying a, a pocket from yellow birch outfitters because kevin turned me on to that i'm like Oh, damn. Two on Harley was, was listening that I, you know, I carry my, my stuff in one of those, but, uh, what, what do you normally carry on a daily basis? Like you wake up, you throw stuff on your belt in your pockets. What, what's normally on your person? Sure. So, well, first off, you got to realize that I live one mile from my martial arts school. So my daily commute con consists of a two and a half minute drive to my martial arts school and a two and a half minute drive back. And unless I'm going to just be running errands or doing something like that, um, you know, it's, um, uh, it's a pretty short commute, but, um, every day I run a staccato P, um, with a hollow sun, uh, 509 T optic. Um, I, I'm a huge fan. I think, uh, I love the 2011. Um, I, I switched to a hollow sun, switched to a red dot optic uh, just at the beginning of the year with this gun. Uh, up until then, uh, I ran uh, a Glock 17 with uh, open sight, iron sights. Um, but as I got older, I found uh, my scores and my accuracy scores uh, for, you know, because we all shoot at 25 yards uh, for our accuracy standards. 
and my scores were suffering because I couldn't make out the front sight post. So switched to that red, red dot and scores climbed back to where they had been previously. So definitely a measurable, quantifiable um, value add there. Um, I carry uh, a rat blade. Um, you know, imagine that. <laughs> and, uh, and I carry that pretty much all the time. Like it doesn't matter what I'm wearing, uh, what time of the day or night I have that rat on. Um, I also carry the, uh, the yellow birch outfitters, uh, you know, uh, wallet, if you will. Uh, I, I, I carry, you know, my normal cash and stuff like that in there. I have, uh, a little note in there, uh, from Guru Dan and Asano, a personalized note that he wrote me. And uh, so I keep that in there. Um, uh, and that's one of my pictures that make me smile. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, I carry, uh, a sap in my back left pocket. Um, and I carry a Smith and Wesson J frame, um, uh, hammerless revolver six, six forty, I believe, uh, in my uh, front left pocket. And, uh, so, and people are like, Holy cow, that's a lot of stuff. But, um, but I am, I, I try to explain to people, like, I'm not your normal guy. And it's not that I'm expecting a lot of violence in the two and a half minute commute. It's that, uh, this, this is my lifestyle. Like this is my life. And how can I tell people what to carry unless I've carried it, unless I've tried it, unless I ran it for a couple of years, unless I ran that holster, tried this optic or carried that knife for, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And so since th this is my job, I, uh, I consider that this, the, the, the regular consistent testing of those EDC items is part of my job. And I, and I don't feel like just carrying it for a week or two is true research. Um, so I have to carry things for quite a while and, and, uh, didn't make decisions. And so that's a process and, uh, like for all of us, yourself included, I'm sure mm -hmm. that's a process that takes time. And as time moves on, then I, I transition out gear and transitions in gear, but, uh, I will always have my watch. I will always have my wallet. I will always have my cell phone. I will always have a gun, a blade, um, you know, that kind of thing. You know, I've, I've had a similar phenomenon happen where I've done like a video, like I did one recently with like blade HQ and I, uh, they're like, well, what's your loadout? And I start pulling things out of my pocket and they're like, man, that's a lot of stuff to carry. And I said, no, it's not. It's not because like I've spread it out over my body. And I also know that I really want to have certain things on me because of my job. But like, if I'm teaching the survival skills, a Swiss army knife with a whole bunch of tools will, will help me out. And then the best part was I pulled out my, uh, my Amtac Minuteman and I put that in the video and I just talked to one of the guys I was in the video with. And he's like, we've had a lot of people ask about that blade. And he's like, it's terrible that we can't say that we sell it. And I was like, yeah, I know. Cause you know, Bill sells his own knives, but, uh, right. you know, when you put it that way, where you say like, look, this is, this is my job. My job is to, to test this, this content, this material, and if it works for me, I'm going to, I'm going to advocate for it because it will work for you most likely. And that might save your life. And that's my job. You know, I'm, I'm in the business of teaching people how to preserve their lives, you know, how to defend their lives for you, you know, and, and when people say, oh, that's a lot to carry. Well, it might be for you because you haven't put that willingness in there to actually try it, you know? Um, so I think, right. I, I think there's something to be said about a well thought out EDC and, and yeah, pistol blade. So 
flashlight. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and of course, my car is just an extension of that. My mm-hmm. Jeep is is just a giant EDC, right? And then then my home is, you know, what resupplies all of that. And you know, even my even my my businesses, the locations of my businesses are uh, have the capability of, of re and re and uh, resupplying those other things, right? So. I think that's a, an essential part. I mean, you know, I've been the guy who uh, was in a situation and didn't have what he needed. I'm sure we can all, uh, you know, think back to a moment in time when you're like, man, if I just had a pair of pliers, <laughs> you know, if I just had, if I just had a flathead screwdriver, I could solve this problem, you know, or if I, anybody got a pair of scissors, well, you know, I'd rather go through the process of being able to define exactly what those things are. And then when circumstances rise that I need something or someone that I care about needs something that I have what they need right here. And I can help solve this problem with this simple tool. And, uh, and so I think that's worth the effort. You posted a while back, those little, uh, what are they? Nipex? uh, pliers. And and I I had to get a set and I'll tell you something like I I was, I was very skeptical at first. I'm like, I will never use these things. And I've used them a bunch of times since I've carried them. Um, you know, instead of carrying like a big chunky multi-tool around, which arguably my Swiss army knife is a big chunk. I'm chunky multi-tool, but you know, (laughs) many people will carry a big, uh, like Leatherman or, or Swiss tool or whatever. And, Maybe they use the pliers a handful of times, but it's a lot of weight, but those little pliers are awesome. And I I didn't realize that there would be so many uses for them. Yeah. You know, I think that um, when I look at the things that I would use in my multi-purpose tool, um, I would use really almost none of the other stuff. I, I would use my pliers to grab hold of something and pull something, twist something, you know, stabilize something, turn something. Um, and I would use, uh, the knife to cut something. And that was really about it. Um, and I was like, man, that's a lot to carry just to have, you know, now I do think that the pliers are a great idea. So I was like, okay, well, I'm going to get, and so I looked around and Kinepex has some of the best, uh, most well-engineered, well-made, you know, pliers. And so I just went ahead and got those pocket size pliers and man, you, you know, they're very, very useful. And of course I have a rat every day. So if I need to cut something, I just use that. Um, so, uh, yeah, I didn't feel like I needed to carry around a big giant multi-tool. <laughs> yeah. Constantly learning from you. Um, so we're running short on time here. Uh, sure. what, what else is there that we haven't really covered? I mean, there's so much we could talk for hours and hours on, but I mean, it, what's, what's next on your to-do list, so to speak, like what's your next big plan? I know you've been up to Alaska a bunch of times hunting and I mean, what's, what's something that's on your bucket list? <laughs> oh, well, bucket list. Uh, well, I mean, there's, there's a lot of things. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, that's what I figured. <laughs> I, you know, I, I'm, I'm afraid that, uh, one of these days I'm going to be laying on my deathbed be like, Oh, I didn't, these things I didn't get done. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I'm really trying to get as much done uh, as I can while I'm here. Um, but you know, I still love going to Alaska. I still love hunting up there. Um, you know, we got a moose last year. I'm hoping to get a bear. Um, I think that would be great. Um, but I, but you know, as you well know, the, the trophy or the animal, uh, that you get is, you know, uh, just a, a representation of the adventure of the challenge of the overcoming hardship of the solve, the problem solving, uh, you know, of the camaraderie and brotherhood that you, that you build, uh, uh, through all that. And so, uh, that's really what I enjoy, you know? 
uh, in the hunting aspect. Well, I agree with you on the adventure side and I feel bad for guys and gals who lose that sense of adventure throughout their lifetime. You know, I think they, they, they almost go into that receiver mode, right? Where it's like, well, I'll never be able to stop saying that there is always a way you can get in on some type of adventure and you don't have to be the trigger puller to, to enjoy a hunt, you know, or you don't have to, you know, trek miles and miles and miles. There are different ways of, of hunting still, you know, and I feel bad for the folks that, that just don't get it. Um, but where, where can people find you? Like, so I've already mentioned warrior's way. Um, I know you have a Facebook group, headhunter blades. Uh, how, how can people get in touch with you? Yeah. Uh, Harley, uh, Harley Um, you know, you can email my wife. That would be at crystal with a K at Harley And of course, Harley Elmore on social media, Facebook and Instagram. Um, you know, all that stuff we try and, uh, push out some regular content and talk to people and show some videos of what we're doing and, you know, stay in touch with the world. Do you have, cause I know you do this on social media. Do you have a quote that you want to leave people with? Um, you've had some really good ones lately, some really good ones, like hard hitting ones. Uh, do you have something that you want to leave people with? And I'll give you the final word. <laughs> um, well, I, you know, the thing I try and explain to people and, and it's something of course that I learned in SIOC. And, and if, if you look at people and how they live their life, they, people are, you say, Hey, stay safe, be safe. And I'm like, well, I'm not sure that's exactly the right answer, you know, uh, because that implies the idea of being timid and pulling back from challenge and pulling back from risk and threat. And uh, I don't think that's the, rate, the way that you should, we, we should be, uh, the, the presentation that we should push out into the world, that, that way we should walk through the world. We should be so dangerous that those threats are repelled by that, by repelled by the capability that we have. And, uh, and that we should, we should be so dangerous that we can overcome those challenges and those hardships. So whenever I talk to my people, the last thing I say to them as they're leaving and driving off, it's not, okay, we'll be safe. Instead it's be dangerous. Damn. Well, guys, I'll tell you, if you've, if you've been listening to this, uh, hopefully you have a better understanding of, of why I've been so enthralled with, with Syac all these years. It's gentlemen like, like two on Harley Elmore, uh, and words like that. I'll tell you something. Uh, I started my journey in Syac in 2007. I'm hoping more of you will, will join the tribe, you know, prove your, your worth to the tribe because there's so much to learn from it. And please check out the work that he's doing. Cause he's doing great stuff for great Americans. Um, so two on Harley, thank you so much for, for joining us here. That's been my pleasure. I, I look forward to uh, uh, hearing from anybody that has any questions and happy to help people uh, who are out there on the, on the journey. There you have it, folks. Guys, I'm Kevin Estella with Fieldcraft Survival, and this has been the Fieldcraft Survival Podcast. Thanks for listening. <laughs>